Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Robert Kaplan, who's the best-selling author of 22 books on foreign affairs and travel, translated into many languages, including his latest book, which is just about to uh, be published, The Loom of Time Between Empire and Anarchy from the Mediterranean to China. He holds the Robert Strauss Hoop Chair in Geopolitics at the Foreign Policy Research Institute for three decades. He reported on foreign affairs for the Atlantic, the senior advisor at Eurasia Group. He was chief geopolitical analyst at Stratfor, a visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy, senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and a member of both the Pentagon's Defense Policy Board and the U.S. Navy's Executive Panel. Foreign Policy Magazine twice named him one of the world's top 100 global thinkers. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Mr. Kaplan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, thanks for taking that time. I, I discovered I got one of your uh, previous books in, in physical uh, hard copy here, and I've been reading your your latest in uh, the digital format, and it's got a lot of depth. It's it's rich. It's uh, part travel diary. It's a history book. It's international relations, a little bit of uh, everything. And I, it, it, what came to mind for me was, I think it was last year, the EU's Guy Verhofstadt, uh, said that we were living in a new age of empires. He said the EU, EU is an empire. Of course, America is an empire. Russia is an empire. Uh, in, India and China is an empire. And you saw your book discussing, uh, talking about the Uyghurs and China's Belt and Road Initiative. You also end the book discussing uh, uh, China and the world island uh, of Mackinder. And you you say that China's treatment of the Uyghurs is the closest one gets to traditional 19th century imperialism in the 21st century. You say empire is dead, but that the imperial mindset is experiencing an afterlife. So, uh, you know, what, what can you tell us about your book and about imperialism in the 21st century? Sure. Um, the subtitle of this book is Between Empire and Anarchy. Usually people discuss the greater Middle East um, as between democracy and authoritarianism. I don't do that because I feel to put it between democracy and authoritarianism is to basically assume that our history and our intellectual obsessions are more important than the, to the Middle East and the Middle East's own experience over time. And when you look at its own experience, it's a history of empire in order to stave off anarchy. And by empire, I don't only mean the British and French and their mandated authorities. We had the, uh, you know, I write about the Umayyad Empire in sixth, seventh century Syria, which governed from Morocco on the Atlantic all the way to what is now Iraq. Um, I write about the Abbasid Empire, which governed a similar vast territory uh, after the Umayyads. I write about the Fatimid the Hafsids, um, so that emp and then of course there are the Ottomans. You know, the, you know the Ottomans ruled much of the Middle East from Algeria to Iraq for over four hundred years, um, and uh, and and so the British and French only came after that in the you know in the twentieth century after World War One. So the Middle East history is about empire. And because empire covers a vast swath of territory, it makes it difficult for modern states to develop. 
So one of the problems why modern states have not developed what we'll call modern democratic systems in the Middle East is because empire, which provided stability for much of the Middle East for so long, also impeded the development of modern states. Um, so it's sort of like a um, a mixed legacy. And it, so it's between empire and anarchy. And I say, if you want to take the long view, the significance of the Middle East today, the greater Middle East today, is that it's the first time in memory when there is no imperial authority. Because all the empires I've mentioned, including the British and the French, including the United States and the Soviet Union, which were empires in all but name during the Cold War, um, they're all gone or they're diminished in one way um, or another. And the region is on its own. And because it's on its own, there's all this churning. This you know you, you know all, all this churning the, this instability uh you know the Arab Spring failed in every country but that doesn't mean that future attempts at modernity of democracy will also fail it doesn't mean that at all so it's not an altogether pessimistic thesis that I'm proposing in this book riots across Europe unprecedented food and energy inflation increasing military conflict around the globe and a rising digital police state, the fourth turning is here. And so is the Expat Money Summit. The free online event, expatmoneysummit.com, is back and will help you navigate these turbulent times. Featuring dozens of renowned experts such as Dr. Ron Paul, international man Doug Casey, Jim Rogers, and Mark Faber, the summit will reveal how you can reclaim your freedom abroad, reduce your tax bill, protect your wealth, obtain multiple citizenships and residencies, become part of a like-minded global community, and more. Founder of expatmoney.com, Mikhail Thorup, will be your guide on this journey to protect yourself from economic collapse, World War III, authoritarian Western regimes, and Klaus Schwab's Great Reset. Simply go to expatmoneysummit.com and enter your email to reserve a free ticket to the event. Do it now. And as you mentioned, uh, currently there are really no empires in the region, but you also uh, discuss uh, the Belt and Road and the Greater Middle East and China making inroads. You mentioned the China-Iran strategic alliance and it being a geographic organizing principle of the Middle East and uh, Central Asia. And then um, in your different chapters, you go, you, you, you focus on different countries that, that you visited. You've talked with elites there. Uh, which we can get into Turkey, Egypt, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iran, Afghanistan. We don't have time for all of that, which is why I recommend the book. But uh, before looking at some of these countries, any further thoughts on uh, what you mentioned about China uh, coming in now? Yes. Um, China, um, ch you know, ch China has been doing a lot in the Middle East. The Belt and Road Initiative in terms of trade routes, roads, railways, pipelines through from Western China, through Central Asia, into Iran, into other parts of the Middle East. It Belt and Road really is about connecting Europe and, and Asia through the Middle East. Um, and the uh, and the uh, 
the Chinese have, you know, their big customers, the biggest customers for oil and gas from both from both Iran and Saudi Arabia. They're also making investments in the many tens of billions of dollars in Egypt, um, uh, you know, in the Persian Gulf. Um, the the Chinese ambition in the Middle East is more than just economic. It's military, it's diplomatic, it's cultural. And I think that um, this big ambition, which I bookend the book with, the beginning and the end, and deal with it in the middle, you know, in the Egyptian chapter and all of that, it's this ambition which I think is motivating the Biden administration lately to get more involved in the Middle East. When the administration first came in, it thought it could leave the Middle East aside and concentrate on other areas. It's finding out that that was too, that was naive. So the very proposal of the, the, the very exploration of the Biden administration to somehow come up with a peace plan for Israel and Saudi Arabia is motivated by the Chinese, you know, by the fact that, you know, the Biden administration doesn't want to stand aside and watch the Chinese move into the area. It wants its own uh, security uh, uh, architecture in place. Yeah, and you, you kind of mentioned before how U.S., presence has been uh diminishing and so now we're seeing this sort of struggle between china and the us and um maybe we can you know turkey is a big and important topic and and i think you begin uh with that you met uh you detail in the book how you met the recent presidential candidate uh ahmed uh davutoglu uh and you, you describe things how erdogan has islamicized uh the country i lived for a few years in kazakhstan and i could even see the reach of turkey out there in in, in kazakhstan and he's uh apparently you know, i uh one of my past guests gregory copley in the program of the international strategic studies association he just put out a a memo saying how lately turkey has been purging its military ranks of nato trained officers uh, which you know previously had been a desirable attribute. I think you sort of touch on that as well. And I do. I do touch on that. I write. It used to be that the path to generalship in the Turkish army was to spend some time as a student at Fort Leavenworth and at this Command and General Staff College in Kansas, or or at other U.S. Army war war college facilities. Now that counts against you. You know. You know it, yeah, and that sort of tells us, you know, the, the, this turn where, where Turkey is, is headed, as you discuss in the book, and this sort of neo-Ottomanism, they've been walking the wire between East and West. Um, and so, you know, if you could tell us more about your thoughts on Erdogan and, and Turkey and, and where uh, it's headed. Yes, um, basically, Ataturk moved Turkey dramatically to the West. And remember, Ataturk was a man of cosmopolitanism. He grew up in Salonika with Jews and Christians and all. So he had a very cosmopolitan outlook. And that led to him being very secular. And um, so, so it, Turkey was moved dramatically to the West. A Ataturk changed the, the, you know, he, he removed Arabic and made the Latin script. He had women take off their headgear. Uh, you know, he, he did many, he changed the calendar. He did many things. Be um, decades after Ataturk, there, there was a slight movement back towards the center, 
to more Islamism. I write about uh, Turgut Özal in the book, who is a uh, who is a Turkish prime minister who I met a number of times in Ankara in the 1980s, um, who essentially was a, an in a, a transition figure. He was pro Ronald Reagan's America, but also pro Islam and religion at the same time. He had this incredible ability to balance both of them, so to speak. Erdogan has, has been the most um, influential Turkish leader since Ataturk. Uh, he's been in power for 20 years. He's moved the country dramatically back towards Islam, uh, you know, sort of erasing the direction that Ataturk had given the country. Um, and by being in power, he's also added a note of authoritarianism. Turkey is officially and legalistically a democracy, but it doesn't function that way, uh, so to speak. Um, so Erdogan has essentially created a quasi-authoritarian rule in Turkey. And though he won the last election, he cannot be in power forever. Um and what'll be interesting to see is what direction Turkey takes after him. Remember, I have the long-range view in this book. And there are two possibilities. One is that he's done so much damage to Turkish bureaucratic institutions over the past 20 years that after Erdogan, you may have a, a low-level Weimar Republic Turkey, a kind of you know semi-chaotic, a very weak state because there'll be a big vacuum left. Uh, the other, on the other hand, it may go right back to a, a moderate democratic system that works fairly well. Um, Erdogan is not the last word in Turkish political evolution. There will be other evolutions after him. Yeah, and you know, just just what you mentioned, I recall a shocking um, note a couple of weeks back that you know tens of thousands of Turks. Uh, have also been fleeing Turkey for economic reasons as well as uh, for um, a, a, a precious uh, for for uh, dissident uh, reasons. And uh, maybe uh, you know next you discuss Egypt. Uh, you mentioned it's uh, I guess based on some of your discussions, someone mentioned that it's where the Muslim Brotherhood never dissolves, that they don't have a sustainable form of uh, a government. You talked to Ahmed Abul Gate, Secretary General of the Arab League, who you know, that describes the region as uh, chaotic and that um, blame, blames the, the U.S. Uh, a lot. But you're seeing new alliances with Israel and China and Russia and that the Egyptians are moving closer to the Chinese orbit. Uh, so what can you tell us about Egypt? Yeah, um, all dictators are not alike. Um, when Hosni Mubarak came into power in 1981, you know, he was in power until 2011. That's uh, 30 years. Um, and his his outlook, you know, his mindset was that of a caretaker that or a butler. I will leave the country exactly as I found it. He was not dynamic. He was more dynamic in his early years and got even less dynamic as time as time went along. But he did die peacefully in his bed. Um, and he was in power for 30 years, whereas Nasser, uh, basically extinguished himself after a few short, 
years, um, uh, you know, after about 16 years because of the fiasco of the 1967 war, and Sadat was assassinated. Mubarak stayed in power for 30 years. Um, Mubarak was replaced, you know, you know, Mubarak led to the Arab Spring in Egypt. And the Arab Spring lasted about two years. And, and one of the things I point out in the book through a lot of interviews is that in the West, we see the Arab Spring in Egypt as a time of hope and renewal. But for average Egyptians, it was a time of chaos and, you know, and lack of safety. And it really traumatized them. And that's why when Abdel Fattah al-Sisi came to power, the you know, the current president, former general, when he came to power in a coup d'etat and, and became an absolute dictator, he was actually welcomed even by the intellectuals. For it, it was a period that didn't last, but at least in the first year or two, he was welcomed because he returned stability to the country. And people who had experienced semi-anarchy were so traumatized that they welcomed the stability. Well, al-Sisi has been in power now for um, 12 years, over a decade. And at the beginning, he seemed very dynamic, not like Mubarak, um, you know, a lot of young ministers replacing people who didn't keep up very quickly. He didn't have his advisors age along with him like Mubarak did. And that was one of the keys to Mubarak's stagnation. Um, and al-Sisi, um, but now as we enter, as we're in deeply into the second decade of al-Sisi's rule, we see the same stagnation. We see that the regime has no real answers. You know, there's water shortages, other problems. The Chinese are building these cities in the desert, a new capital for them. And that's soaking up a lot of unemployment by putting young people to work as laborers. But that's not the answer either. I, I fear that Egypt could, could evolve into a real hard in hard regime, a regime where where there are you know water and other shortages, and the regime has no answer to it except the iron fist, except repression. Um, so, um, but again, um, reform may come to Egypt through splits in the ranks in the military. By coming, you know, the military will have different tendencies, and and that will lead to a kind of an opening. Remember, you can have you can have reform and evolution and and a lightening up of repression without democracy. You see, um, you know, there are many ways that it can happen, very subtle or whatnot. So I don't entirely give up hope on Egypt. Uh, yeah, and um, you know, we're gonna sort of skip ahead. You, you've got a chapter on Egypt, which you, uh, sorry, uh, Ethiopia, which you compare to my parents, uh, Yugoslavia. My parents are Croatian, the, the, and they, they emigrated from Yugoslavia. And I, I've had in the past Lawrence Freeman, uh, who's uh, worked with the Ethiopian uh, government. Uh, we've talked about that. You also discussed the importance of the Gird uh, Dam. But uh, you know, maybe in the interest of time, to jump to Saudi Arabia, MBS, yeah, sure, uh, Vision Twenty Thirty. Uh, Saudi Arabia seems to be one of the most important, uh, you know, nodes in in the Middle East, and you also discuss uh, the, the you know the turn toward China. So uh, you know, could you tell us about Saudi Arabia, the developments there, and and uh, yeah. the importance? Yeah, um, Mohammed uh, bin Salman, 
the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the de facto ruler, is uh, he's a complex figure. On the one hand, he wants the society to be more open, to be more entrepreneurial, to be more dynamic in order to prepare Saudi Arabia for an age when it will make less and less money selling oil and gas, um, uh, you know, in an age of renewables, etc. That's been the real, um, uh, you know, that, you know, that has been the motive behind uh, opening up possibilities for women. Women can drive now. They can go out alone. They don't have to wear uh, headscarves, etc. He's really made a dramatic difference in a positive way for women um, and in other parts, and in other aspects of society. In fact, uh, as ironic as it sounds, the only place where the Arab Spring has actually worked or is working is in Saudi Arabia with all this opening. Um, and he's also, you know, He's also gone away from Islam to some degree. You know, I you know I want to choose my words carefully. Is Saudi Arabia an Islamic state? It's the guardian of the holy places, but the Islamic conservatives have less and less influence in the country. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, he's made it a more repressive dictatorship. You know, if you if you criticize the regime. Or in some way get involved in you know in in attacking the regime or speaking up for uh, for political freedoms. Terrible things can happen to you. So on one hand, it's you know he's made the human rights situation worse. On the other hand, he's made it better. You know um, he wants it all. He wants a dynamic, technocratic. Uh, entrepreneurial society, but also one that's absolutely locked down, where there's absolutely no criticism of the regime. And the question is that I raise in the book is he can't have it all. You know, at some point, you know, he'll have to make a decision or the system will crack. Right now, young Saudis I spoke to are all happy about the efficiency of the regime. The regime handled COVID very well. You know, everyone had an app on their iPhones, you know, showing that they had got vaccinated and they had to show the app when they entered shopping malls or movie theaters or restaurants. Uh, the regime really used technology to really handle COVID well. And in addition, you know, you can renew your passport online. You can renew your driver's license online. There are so many things you can now do online or very easily where the bureaucracy is more responsive than it used to be. And young Saudis were telling me, isn't this freedom? What are, you know, aren't these human rights? And one of the things I speculate about in the book is for the time being, they're asking a very good question because things are getting better. You know, you know, the system is opening up, but there may come a time when the economy is worse, when the system stops opening up, where they will, well, they will interpret freedom differently. You know, and that could be a real danger for the regime. Um, I end the chapter with a quote from a, a former Washington Post scholar journalist, David Ottaway, who says that Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he is known, you know, is like Icarus in the Greek um 
uh, in the Greek myth. He has wax wings and he flies too close to the sun and it all melts and he falls into the sea. And so I speculate at the end, I leave this as an open question. Will MBS be like Icarus, you know, or will he manage to survive and have, have it ways uh you know an efficient entrepreneurial technocracy that can navigate beyond the oil and gas age and also a lockdown controlled system you also discuss um the syrian riddle uh, iraq a bit of libya iran afghanistan syria i think is also uh important given what's going on there now the russians are there uh iranians um the chinese it's it's it could be a potential powder keg but you also mentioned the word multipolarity which is all the rage uh today and i think a, a meeting with someone uh where the, the, you had a meeting with someone who comments in terms of global leadership we are in a transition period between outright american dominance and whatever lies beyond and as uh you know we mentioned you discussed the world island and the need to prevent the chinese from dominate dominating it so any, any thoughts on multipolarity uh the world island and uh you know american dominance and so forth yeah well as i said um as i said um the it, the middle east is beyond empire for the first time in its collective history so it means that states themselves have to forge alliances and have to form arrangements well but whereby they can they they can navigate and be at peace without an outside power or an indigenous great power like the uh the umayyads or the abbasids imposing order so to speak. And I think um, the jockeying you're seeing, you know, the fact that a number of Arab states, uh, Persian Gulf states, made peace treaties with Israel is, you know, what does that mean? What that means is these states are f- afraid of Iran. They know Israel is the address for high-tech military security, and they know that they can uh, rely on the United States less and less. So the peace treaties with Israel was sort of like a corporate merger, you know? It was very Machiavellian, you know? It was about interests. It wasn't about anything emotional or anything. And the Saudis were behind it, even though they didn't take part in it, uh, so to speak. So you have the Gulf states making peace with Israel. You have this Chinese brokering uh, uh improved relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran and you have the Biden administration exploring the possibility of a peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel all these things taken together would seem to help stabilize the region um and and, and would all and would oh, balance against China because remember, we the the war in Ukraine is not going well for Russia and the longer it goes on the less Russia is capable of projecting power in central asia in the far east etc and that allows china to become a eurasian power in addition to being an asian a purely asian power so uh, you know this is all about limiting chinese power the middle east will will be a register for power relationships, great power relationships in the world, um, in, you know, in the future. Remember, Mackinder's world island was all about nobody dominating it, no one power dominating it. And the biggest satellite 
outside of the Eurasian, Afro-Eurasian world island was North America, was the temperate zone of North America. But if the Chinese can dominate the world island due to the weakening of Russia, this puts the United States in a dangerous situation. So I think all of this is why the Biden administration is, you know, to, to use an awkward phrase, moving back into the Middle East, you know, you know, you know, taking a, a larger interest in it. All right, we, we've just scratched the surface uh, of the book. Is there any final thought uh, for us or any other um, thing you wanted to mention? Uh, just that this is a book that, um, you know, it's about travel. It's about um Ge geopolitics. It's about journalism, because I interview dozens of people in most countries that I go to. And that's that's all in the book. It's sort of it's a book that's hard to characterize. I like to say it's a book that people used to write in the 1970s and 80s. Nowadays, everyone's a political science specialist. You know, this is not that kind of a book. You know, this is a wide ranging generalists exercise. Yeah, I think you mentioned Paul uh, Thoreau, the the travel. Paul Thoreau, yeah, yeah, and I used to read him back in the day, and yeah, it's it's a combination, as you say, and again, because you have access, because of your background and experience, you have access to these um, elite uh, people, and and throughout the book, you you discuss your meetings with them, and uh, you know that is uh, uh, very precious. So again, uh, the book, uh, the loom of time between empire and anarchy, from the Mediterranean to China, the link is in the description. Uh, people can find it on Amazon in digital format or um, physical, and uh, they can continue to follow uh, Robert Kaplan's work. Thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.